Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness, the uncertainty and pretty much anything that life throws us at us at the moment. I'm Ali Hill and today's episode was recorded well before our current COVID-19 world experience. I've had this one waiting in the wings and whilst the timing doesn't quite match the context we're in, the topic certainly does. We dive into meditation, mindfulness and more importantly, innovation. Ariel Garten is a neuroscientist, an innovator and an entrepreneur whose driving purpose is to empower and help others overcome mental obstacles. And she has done this by being the co-founder of an organisation who are the makers of Muse, a brain-sensing headband. I wanted to dive in and find out more about this technology and how it assists us through biofeedback to improve our meditation practice. We talk meditation, the benefits and the tips and strategies to integrate this into your life more regularly. Her team's technology has been featured in over a thousand media pieces, as well as being the feature showcase at the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. Get this, it was an installation that allowed over 7,000 people to control lights on the CN Tower, the Canadian Parliament buildings and Niagara Falls with their brains from across the country. Ariel can be found giving her audiences the tools they need to help them become their best selves. Enjoy this dive into the world of meditation, innovation and technology with Ariel Garten. Ariel, lovely to connect with you over over Skype and welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. I understand you're sitting in Toronto. It's evening over in Toronto. How is Toronto this evening? It's wonderful. It's sunny and warm and glorious. And I just came back from the farmer's market with my kid. It's perfect. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. It's absolutely on my hit list of places to to venture to at some some point. I want to have a chat with you. Come visit me anytime. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. We need to do this face-to-face for sure. (laughs) Um, I'd love to have a chat about meditation and start to talk to you about meditation. Where did your connection to meditation come from? Where did that start for you? From a few different places. So one, I've always been fascinated by the brain and how it works. And even as a young kid, I tried to meditate, but I didn't understand what it was or how to do it. Um, I then became trained as a neuroscientist and all the literature around meditation, you know, was so convincing. And I was trained as a psychotherapist. I was in private practice and I'd be teaching my patients to meditate, but I was a terrible meditator. You know, I'd sit there and I'd try to meditate and I had a million things going on and I'm just like, ah, forget this. But I'd be teaching my patients the value of it to overcome the challenges that were in their life. Um, and secretly was a terrible meditator. And then I began working with an amazing technology in the early 2000s, a brain-computer interface system. So it was a single electrode in the back of the head. And by changing your brain state, by focusing or relaxing, you could actually change the output. So you could focus and make a sound get louder and relax and make a sound get quieter. And I formed a company around that, began to really explore the use of this technology with my co-founders, and ultimately recognized that if we could help people meditate, we would probably do something amazing for the world. And really, that's that's how I finally figured out how to meditate, I love a tool to help other people meditate yeah, by understanding what goes on in your brain. I love that you came to it because you felt like you sucked at it. Because <laughs> I think anyone who's tried it, nice 
definitely would put myself in that in that camp of going, look, I know it's great, um, recommend it to everyone left, right and centre, but the actual act of sitting in meditation and then our brains take over and go, am I doing this right? I'm not, you know, I've got a million other things, I'll just get them done before I, I, I come to this, um, that it was almost kind of a pathway around for you. Do you think... Um, is that been a common experience that you've come across with people who have tried meditation and, and found it difficult, similar to your own experience? Extremely common. So people either don't really know what meditation is. So you sit there and you're like, my mind's going to go blank and then I'll levitate. And like both of those are equally as unlikely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your mind never goes blank. You never levitate. Um, and so people don't know what to do. Or if you do know what to do, you know, the act of focusing on your breath and then having your mind wander and then refocusing on your breath can be pretty boring and frustrating. And so it can create as amazing as this practice is, it can create a lot of, you know, resentment, a lot of self-judgment, a lot of difficulty in the act of doing it. Which is then counterproductive to the point of meditation, right? Well, ironically, which is the practice if you're able to sit with that discomfort and get through it. But most people don't have the tools to do that at the beginning of a practice. You just get up and walk away and decide it's not for you. How do you define meditation? Like what what is it? Um, If it's not the levitating, (laughs) then what is it? Um, So the official definition of meditation is a practice or training that leads to healthy and positive mind states. So it's not this like weird woo-woo thing. It's an actual practice or training that you do regularly that's going to improve your mind. And there are many different forms of meditation that you've probably heard of, like Zen, Transcendental. The most common is focused attention meditation. So that's what people typically learn at the beginning. And a lot of these other forms of meditation are variations on a focused attention meditation. And in focused attention, you focus your mind, your mind on your breath. Your mind eventually wanders away from your breath. You then notice that your mind has wandered away, and then you choose to return your attention back to your breath. So it's this very simple loop of attending to your breath, mind wandering, noticing, and returning. I love that, that the act of it is, is just a, it's a practice and it's a presence, um, but there's no right, right or wrong way to it. Obviously, your interest in and study in neuroscience and and doing psychotherapy, um, it's it's an area that's that comes with deep curiosity and fascination. That uh, in order to go into a field like that, you need to, I guess, be really interested in people, in human behaviour, and have that kind of scientific uh, lens on the world. Is that something that's that's always been a part of you? That was kind of crafted even even in your upbringing, that sense of curiosity or fascination with the world. Without question, I have always been fascinated by the world, how it works. And then as I grew up, sort of, I was fascinated by the act of fascination. I was fascinated by our brain and how it can perceive the world, how it can perceive the color red, how our brain can lift our arm. So I was immensely curious about how we create our reality through our brain. And then as you know, you age and mature and you start to encounter difficulties in your life, I actually became a therapist because I began seeing a therapist um, around um, some stuff with my parents. And at that point, I was just blown away by the fact that we could actually query our own internal process and shift our perspectives on ourselves and the world in order to create healing. And the idea that we can change the way we see the world in ourselves. We can change our narratives. We can have uh, control over our internal process like this to really 
kind of both term reduced suffering. I mean, that's the way I see it now through meditation lens, um, but really to just enable you to be as you want to in the world. Um, that was so powerful and so tremendous that it's really what I've now dedicated my life to, to helping people understand that the narratives that you have in your own head that, you know, guide you every day don't need to cause you to feel distressed, don't need to cause you to feel shitty about yourself, don't need to cause you to feel, you know, less than. We have the power to actually empower the voices in our own head to feel great about how we live and who we are every day. And it's it's a um, it sounds like that personal experience of seeing that difference and seeing that shift and transformation um, was was the thing that kind of led you into into this field. Uh, what would you say to someone who might be listening and thinking, "Yeah, that sounds good, but I don't think I can change. <laughs> like, I don't think <laughs> and there's a possibility, or these you know this internal thinking, like I, I'm just wired the way I am, and and it will always be what it is." That is so not true. Um, we are wired to be who we are at this moment in time. And at any moment in front of this one, you could be something different. You could think something different. You may only shift your thoughts a tiny little bit and, you know, continue to shift them a tiny little bit every day. And over time, you know, become somebody who is much lighter, much more joyful, much more able to manage and handle your daily experience. You know, we we are incredibly plastic beings. And although we have you know, beliefs that guide how we act in the world, you know, there's so many psychotherapeutic methodologies that help you actually change the belief structure that you have to really shift the way you see the world. And it is liberating. It is fantastic. Um, you know, I've, I've continued on. Yeah, as a therapist and I've also been a client of therapy for many, many years. And I just continue to to shift in my own perspectives of the world and to find new degrees of freedom and happiness and joy and abundance. And it is fantastic. I, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Mm-hmm. And I certainly know people who are resistant to therapy and all you have to do is try it. And if you don't like, you know, the therapist you've got, go try hypnotherapy. If you don't like that, you know, go try NLP. There's so many different forms of therapy that can begin to shift and loosen the stuck places in our life in some really powerful and valuable ways. I think that's really um, such an important, important reminder. I often say to people, you know, particularly whether it's a, you know therapy or support or a counselor or some kind of guidance, um, we try it once, and if it's not quite the right match, we we think the whole process doesn't work, and yet. Um, it's a bit like hairdressers or mechanics that if you don't find the one that suits you, you go and find another one. Uh, shopping for a wedding dress. Totally. You know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's finding the match, um, the match for you. When you actually started, I guess, studying neuroscience, was there anything about it that surprised you? So obviously you'd had a bit of an understanding of um, psychology and people and uh, a bit of an introduction into the brain but it can be quite different when you jump into the study of it and particularly when there can be a lot of statistics or a lot of research Uh, was there anything that surprised you once you launched into the study I mean, there's so many different aspects of uh, neuroscience so I spent some time studying um, the brain from a very molecular perspective Um, uh, from a neurotransmitter perspective, I did some work in Parkinson's. I did some work looking at hippocampal neurogenesis, and that was amazing. So 
I worked in a hippocampal neurogenesis lab. Hippocampal neurogenesis is the growth of new neurons in the brain. So uh, we used to presume that we just had all our neurons in adulthood, and that's it. We never grow any new ones. That's not true. We actually can regenerate new neurons, and that actually happens in the area of the brain uh, called the hippocampus. And in the studies that we we're doing in the laboratory, we were encouraging the growth of new neurons in rats, and then uh, identifying where they moved through the brain, you know, following their their growth, and identifying um, how they how new neurons then allowed a rat to, for example, learn how to navigate a maze more effectively. But to me, the most fascinating thing was to get neurons to grow in a rat. You simply would throw it on a running wheel. You know, with all of our fancy reagents and chemicals we were using, with all of our amazing, you know, fluorescence techniques that we had to look at the rat brain after the fact, the easiest way to get new neurons to grow is simply to put a rat on a running wheel. And uh, the same thing very much holds true for a human. We can do tremendous uh, value to our brain by simply exercising. That's amazing, isn't it? When you actually can see that shift and change. Um it would be better if it was chocolate cake that actually made the difference. <laughs> but uh, but the, well, the good thing is when you're on the running wheel, you are powered by chocolate cake. Of course. So clearly chocolate cake powers neurogenesis. <laughs> I knew we'd find a way. <laughs> we'd find a way to see the connection. Um, but to be able to see that change in the brain and particularly, and you mentioned before, the neuroplasticity of our brains, we have come through in the past, I guess, believing that it just is what it is. And if anything, our brain changes by degenerating rather than regenerating. Whereas, yeah, what you're um, what you're talking about is the in the current science, and I think the science will continue to show that that there is pathways and new ways of operating. And, and the the reality is that we continue to change as human beings, and our brains continue to change. And you know, one of the most powerful forms of the potential to change the brain is meditation. And that's part of what so fascinated me by it. So when you look at studies on the impact of meditation on the brain, they're really dramatic. So there's like over a thousand published studies talking about meditation's impact on your GRE scores, on your stress, on your productivity, um, on your athleticism, on your relationships, and on and on and on. Um, but the evidence around the brain is really fascinating. So in one study by Dr. Sarah Lazar at Harvard, she looked at the prefrontal cortex of individuals. So the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that's responsible for your thinking, your higher order processing, your planning. It's really the thing that you know makes us human. And um, as you age, your prefrontal cortex unfortunately thins. Well, what Dr. Lazar was able to demonstrate was that individuals who had a long-term meditation practice were able to maintain the thickness of their prefrontal cortex even as they aged. So you actually saw real structural changes in the brain through a long-term meditation practice. She was also able to demonstrate a down-regulation of the amygdala of a long-term meditation practitioner. So the part of your brain responsible for flight and fight and freaking out, that actually quiets as you engage in meditation practice. Um, other studies have demonstrated a maintaining the size of the hippocampus through long-term meditation. So the hippocampus is the learning and memory area of your brain. Um, other studies have shown uh, increased activity in the temporal parietal junction, which is the compassion and empathy and perspective-taking area of the brain. So, you know, this one simple act of focusing your attention on your breath, your mind wandering, and then returning it has the potential to have really significant impact in your mind and body. Yeah, when you're talking about feeling less stress, more compassion, more kindness, 
um, and then just the quality and longevity of life, that's really powerful. Is there any recommendations around, um, and I know it can be different for different people, but how long to meditate, when to meditate, um, a, a, a location, time and place? Are there any recommendations from a really practical level? Um, so the best length of time to meditate is the length of time you're going to do. And the best place to do it and time to do it is the time you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. It's a habit like anything else. You have to do it regularly. When we look at our studies of um, average individuals using Muse, there was one study from Baycrest uh, Hospital, and they saw average individuals using Muse for six weeks a day for 10 minutes per day. And what they noticed was a change in their relationship to their symptoms, so a change in their headache, pain, and nausea. Um, they saw a decrease in stress, which is obvious, and an increase in calm. And they also saw improvements in cognitive function as measured by group task. So, you know, with Muse, we've seen that just 10 minutes a day of regular meditation can have, like, meaningful impact. Um, Other studies look at 20 minutes per day and the ability to have impact there. For a lot of people, that's long. And so part of building Muse was, like, building a program that lets you start at just three or five minutes a day and helps you get up to 10 minutes a day regularly or 20 minutes a day if that's where you want to end up going. Beautiful. Yeah. So even just consistency is key. Um, 10 minutes if you can get it done but doing it every day regardless where you are and and how you're doing it you've touched on on your invention muse so I want to talk a little bit about that um and you said earlier that the part of how you came into meditation was being able to see your brain patterns change or, or the impact of meditation and what it's doing on your kind of brain activity Tell me a little bit about Muse. So what I understand is it's wearable tech that we can get feedback on the brain activity while you're meditating. How did you come come up with that? How did you embark on, on that path to invent this device? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, myself and my co-founders were working with this early technology and we're aware of the challenge around meditation, you know, as we talked about is great as it is, it's so hard to do because you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know what's going on in your mind. And so we took this early technology that we were working on and we translated it into a device that can actually show you what goes on in your brain during meditation, like answer that age old question of what am I supposed to be doing and am I doing it right with real feedback from your brain. So what Muse does is it's a slim little wearable. It slips on just like a pair of glasses. It's kind of like a Fitbit. You wear it on your head. Um, And it has sensors that track your brain. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're distracted thinking your brain's bouncing all over the place, you actually hear it as stormy. And as you guide yourself to quiet, focused attention, it quiets the storms. So as your mind begins to wander again, the storm picks up. And that becomes your cue to bring yourself back and quiet the storm. So it really shows you and guides you what you're, as to what you're supposed to be doing. And it really guides you into that focused attention state, that quote-unquote meditation zone, and lets you know that you're there and reinforces you for keeping, reinforces you for being able to stay there. And so you get real-time feedback during your meditation to know what to do. And then after the fact, you get data, charts, graphs, store, scores, things that show you um, what your brain was doing moment by moment, help you really reflect on the process and show you your progress so that session after session after session, you can see your improvement. So it becomes super motivating. There's this motivational architecture that makes meditation fun and a little bit gamified. So you come back to it day after day and actually truly build a practice. 
Yeah, I imagine you're seeing the, the progress and the data is so powerful. So when you're wearing it, what you're hearing is the sound and the noises and that's the trigger around what what activity is happening in your brain. Is that correct? Yeah, so when your mind is wandering, you hear the storm pick up. Mm-hmm. When you come back to focused attention, you hear the storm quiet. So it really is guiding and showing you what's going on in your mind, really guiding you into that place of focus. And what's some of the feedback that you're getting from people that are using Muse? Oh, it's it's super amazing. So we have literally hundreds of thousands of people who use it every day. Um, you know, people who've done over a thousand sessions who use it every day and love it. And they say things like, I was actually talking to a meditation teacher recently, um, and Muse has been out for four years. And I said, well, how did you learn to be a meditation teacher? And they actually said, by using Muse. Like, that was the thing that got wow. the teacher into their practice, because it's now been out for several years. Yeah, um, We have yeah, lots of people who've never meditated before be like, oh, now I learn to meditate. This makes sense for me. And then you start to see the downstream benefits in your life. Where can people access the technology? So it's a widely available consumer product. You can get it on Amazon. Amazing. Amazing. Tell me a little bit about the experience for yourself, because it's one thing to realize that in a laboratory with with colleagues to say, hey, this would be really interesting. It's a whole nother thing to be the point where you are now, four years down the track where it's been out on the market and widely accessible. Tell me a little bit about that pathway for yourself. (laughs) It's been unbelievable um you know we started with this crazy idea that we can use a device to interact with our brain and i you know was not shy to think that it was possible you know anybody else could have thought this is crazy like i don't have a tech degree i I have a neuroscience background but i'm not an engineer i'm uh, didn't have a business degree and i ultimately raised venture capital brought together a team Um, My amazing co-founders, Chris and Trevor, and the three of us built a company that's now 70 people selling a product worldwide. And the path to doing that, I think the single biggest thing that I've learned is the value of believing in yourself and that anything is possible. At any point along the way, we could have said like, oh, this won't work. We won't have the money. We won't get buy-in. You know, we're a small Toronto company. How can we get Silicon Valley funding? But I just had that deep and clear belief that this was possible. And I spoke to everybody I knew about it. And I was like, not afraid to really put this idea into the world. And people would say, yes, that's a great idea. I want to join you. And people start joining our team and start giving us money. And I started pitching. And, you know, when you're pitching, you might hear 50 no's before you hear one yes. But it's that deep driving belief that gets you through your 49th pitch and onto your 50th and to your first million bucks. How did you how did you deal with some of those those critics and those those no's? Aside from having that that deep centered belief, what were some of the practical things that you you did? Like even a moment um, after coming out of a pitch and and it mightn't have gone that well or they didn't quite connect with the idea. How how did you respond to that? So there were several things that really helped me. One is. I think I naturally had a pretty quiet inner critic. So I wouldn't walk out of a pitch and say, oh, no, I did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. I was always very positive even when I walked out of a pitch that I knew didn't go well. I saw every opportunity to communicate with somebody as a possibility of building a relationship and learning and growing. So from every pitch that said no, you know, I'd follow up and figure out what didn't they like, what what. You know, what do they think we need to improve? I learn from it and I get somebody else that they can introduce me to. And so I just continue to 
grow through all of the ways in which this didn't work and turn every no into valuable information that ultimately led to the yes. Yeah, I think it's that that stamina and endurance that's um that's a really powerful one. It's easy to talk about but really difficult when when you're in amongst it. You touched on before the the inner critic um and fear often can be the thing that that holds us back from doing doing that thing that we're interested in or curious about or think might be possible but don't move forward. What's what's your relationship with with your own inner fear? So that's a really fascinating question. When I was younger, I think I didn't have much fear. I was somebody who, you know, I might have felt a little fear and I'd stuff it away and I'd just stand up on stage and do it anyways. And the thing that I wanted was so much greater than my fear. And then I got a concussion. And uh, that actually made me very fearful for a period of time. You know, you're afraid of getting your head hit. You're afraid of doing all these things that could trigger you again. And I recognized that I needed to reframe my relationship with fear. And so I started to go into the things that made me afraid. And this is like a standard behavioral therapy technique where if something is causing you fear, you stare it down. You feel the fear and you do it anyways. And like, let me tell you, that's such a terrifying thing to do because you're doing this thing that your body is telling you like, no, don't do, no, this will be bad. And you're forcing yourself to do it anyways. And as you're doing it, you're like feeling all of the fear associated with it. And what you're ultimately doing is teaching yourself that that fear didn't mean anything. Because once you do the thing, it's fine. Like, mm-hmm. it's as if you were afraid of opening the fridge. Let's just take a random fear. And like everything in your body saying like, no, don't open the fridge, it's going to be awful. You force yourself to open the fridge, and as you do, you're feeling all the fear of opening the fridge, and you're feeling and feeling it, and then the fridge is open and nothing happens. And then you just went through this extraordinary experience of fear, which teaches you that you can handle fear, because the only thing that we're really afraid of is feeling fear. Like, all of that shit in our lives that we that we don't want to do, it's because we are avoiding the sensation of fear associated with it. We're avoiding the feelings of doing it. And if you can recognize that you can get through the feeling of fear and get to the other side and be totally fine, then fear loses its power. Fear doesn't mean anything. Fear can no longer hold you back if you're not afraid of having it. You just open the fridge. You might feel some fear along the way, but who cares? It's just a sensation. And then the fridge is open. And then you can eat whatever you want. (laughs) I love that. It's it's not getting rid of the fear, but it's almost getting rid of the, the fear of fear. Uh, it's exactly. that, which is that double double whammy. As you sit right now, what are the things that, because all of us, as you say, we have doubts, we have, it mightn't be full-blown fear, but doubts, uncertainties, worries, things that sit with us. What are some of those things for you at the moment, whether it's in, in your business or in your studies or things that you're moving forward? And, uh, and what is it that helps you, you know, even this week, even today, face those? So it's a really fascinating question because, you know, I spend a lot of time um, or a lot of attention identifying when I have fear and being able to let it move away. So uh, getting to this podcast, for example, required getting my child to bed in a very, you know, quick and efficient manner, which which one typically has no control over when you have a three-year-old. Um, and so in a situation like that, um, the sensations of like anxiety or stress that you're feeling are actually sensations of fear. 
or sensations of fear that you will, you know, that your kid will have a meltdown or fear that you'll be late for the appointment afterwards or feel fear that you won't be able to handle what comes up. Um, and whenever I'm in that kind of situation, I identify and acknowledge the experience that I'm having. I identify and acknowledge the feelings that I'm having. And I also identify and acknowledge that I have the resources to overcome it. You know, I have the resources to deal with whatever comes up. It doesn't matter how much my kid screams. It really doesn't matter. That's what he's experiencing that moment. And I can just stand there peacefully and, and let him do his thing and just calmly reinforce over and over and over again what actually needs to happen. And it really changes your reactions to situations. I was in traffic today and it, what should have been a half an hour ride took me probably about an hour and 10 minutes. And I was quite calm for most of it. And then right at the end, it became a little harried. And I was identifying the sensations that were rising inside of me. And it's like, okay, well, I guess this is what people feel, feel like when you're stuck in traffic. <laughs> this, is, this is a sensation of frustration of being stuck in traffic. Can I do anything about it? No. If I can't do anything about it, then these feelings are trying to warn me of something that I actually have no agency over. So let's just acknowledge that these feelings exist. Let's identify the sensation in our body. Let's let the feeling rise. Let's feeling fall. And then be content with where we are because we cannot change this moment. We cannot change the traffic. All we can do is make the best out of this experience. And so I moved to like doing some self-massage while I was there and putting something interesting on the radio. It's just like, let's make the best of the situation because we now have to choose the course that our mind and body is going to take. And, and choosing that course is about, you know, not suppressing your feelings, acknowledging them, letting them rise, letting them fall, and moving on. You know, it's so easy to let the anxiety in your body trigger thoughts in your head, which trigger more sensation in your body, thoughts in your head, and roll on and on and on. But when you're able to disconnect the trigger from feeling in your body to thoughts in your mind and vice versa, you're really able to change how you navigate through life. And it's everything from how you sit in traffic to to those big things in life. I I, I really um, can see how that practice would would go across because sometimes anxiety um, and those thoughts in our head, where where they're experiencing it before we even rationally realise that we have it, just runs off. So I love that sense of just stopping and acknowledging the moment that you're in. I want to talk a little about, you've got um, two pretty incredible, well, a mission, but it's kind of in two parts um, that you talk about, particularly on your, your website. The first one being to support women to be kick-ass in business, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's such a cool kind of mission. Uh, for me, a lot of when I'm talking to women, whether they're in business or whether they're in you know senior leadership roles in organisations, one of the things that I see time and time again for women is um, asking for help is really hard. We're the first ones there to help other people, uh, but the sense of actually asking for help from ourselves, feel, you know, for ourselves, feels really, really difficult. Um, so, I guess, firstly, have you seen this in in women in businesses, and how have you navigated that sense of asking for help? Um, so, I've certainly seen it, um, and how I've navigated it is to just ask for help and to hold in myself the understanding that people want to help me. And and that really has proven true in my life. You know, people have 
seeing what I've been trying to build, that I'm trying to do something really helpful, that I'm trying to teach people to meditate, that I want to help people manage their mind through it. And that has been a mission that people naturally want to join into and help. And so I've had no problem asking for help, A, because I know that what I'm doing is for a greater good. So when somebody is helping, we are all helping to work together to this greater cause. Um, and B, because we really think about what B is. You know, the first one is really obvious. It's like we're all, we're all working for something bigger. And I guess B, because I love helping other people. Mm. And so knowing the knowing that I can see somebody in a difficult position, it's, you know, whether it's a mom with her arms filled at the grocery store and you, you know, you need to hold their kid for a second or put the grocery bag in or whatever it is. Um, or, or somebody who needs, you know, a different kind of help in their life. Like I know the value of that help. And I think I know the, the really the joy and the, the, the solace that it gives me to help somebody else and so knowing that I'm not afraid to ask for help. Um, you know, we all are human beings that just want to do well by one another. We're all human beings that want to succeed in our own lives and see other people succeed. And when you put yourself in a community context in that perspective, that we are all in a community and when we all work together and help each other, we succeed. As much as it might be embarrassing to ask for help when you kind of get to the larger context of the community then it becomes very natural and like hey can you help me for a minute like hey can you do this um it becomes really normal or hey can you give me a million dollars because i think i'm going to make you money <laughs> you know yeah these are all different kinds of help yeah um um but in the community context we all need to give and take and and part of that is asking for it yeah i love that i love that what do you think holds women back when it comes to business there's a lot of things that can hold women back, um, but that don't hold all women. I think it's very dangerous to, to paint broad strokes. Um, one of the things that can hold somebody back is the perception of their own value mm -hmm. or the perception that you need to have everything perfect before you start. Um, perfectionism is huge, particularly when you, when you think about it in terms of your own skills. You know, there's a famous study that if a, man looks at a job, um, uh, what do you call it? We'll, we'll have to edit this for a second. Yeah. Job description. Um, there's this famous study that when a man looks at a job description, if he has, say, three or four out of ten qualifications, he'll apply for the job. He'll think, oh, great, here I am. You'll be great for this. If a woman has, you know, less than nine out of ten qualifications, for example, she will, she will hesitate. She will not put herself forward for that job. And so we really don't need to have all of the answers to do things in life. We really don't need to have things be perfect. We really don't need to know how to really do things. You know, I, that sounds crazy to say, but it's really true. Like I started a company with no business background, with no tech background. And I knew that I could bring on board the people that could fill each of those roles. I didn't need to understand how it all worked before it started. Um, and that, you know, people could have faith in me that I would figure it out. I had faith in me that I would figure it out. And I had faith in my team that we could figure it out together. So you really don't have to have all of your ducks in a row before you set them to sail at sea. I totally agree. It's about kind of jumping out there and, and particularly with the support and the recognition of other people. Um, that's a really kind of powerful effort as well. 
um, I get the sense that that learning and growth and uh, what's next is a pretty insatiable part of who you are. Do you have any um, favourite books or books that you would recommend? Maybe books that you've you've gifted or recommended to people regularly um, that come to mind for you. Just half a second. Just half a second. Okay, cool. Um, so actually, my recommendation is a book that has just been recommended to me that I've ordered and I haven't read yet. And it's called You Are the Placebo by Joe Dispenza, uh, in which he purportedly really helps you understand your own body's ability to heal and your own mind's ability to overcome whatever's in your path. I love that. I, um, I have seen that and I haven't read that one either, so I'm going to pop that on my list. Look, it's been such a delight chatting with you. I'd love to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? To live a standout life is one in which you feel like you've succeeded in the ways that you need to, in which you've made the contribution in your life that you want to, in which you've you know, been able to live by your choices. A standout life is one in which, you know, you shine, but hopefully one in which you allow everybody else around you to shine too. Because as women, I think we're often afraid to stand out. We both want to, but we're afraid of it. And so we are so allowed to shine and we're also allowed to let everyone else shine around us too. I love that. And and it almost comes back to the fear of opening the fridge door and the light will shine. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Ariel. Enjoy the rest of your day in Toronto. My pleasure. Enjoy your beautiful morning in Australia. Yeah, will do. Thank you so much.